This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 40. But what happens is we set up our employees, our new recruits, the folks that come into company to experience three versions of company. In creating these three versions of the company, we're eroding engagement from the very start. I think it's this company that I was recruited into. It actually felt like the company when I was there on the first day, and then you sent me to the place where I work, and none of it's really true. It's not that it's good or bad, it's just that it's different, and that mismatch of expectation is driving some of the stats you're seeing, 30% of employees that join a new company leave within 90 days. Those that stay more than six months, 60% of them are still looking for a new job. How do you know when a role is a wrong fit or a right fit for you? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Andre Martin, who's an organizational psychologist, former chief talent officer at Nike, Target, and Google, startup advisor, executive coach, and author of a terrific new book, Wrong Fit, Right Fit, Why How We Work Matters More Than Ever. Andre's on a mission to help organizations recover the $7.8 trillion of lost productivity due to disengagement and to make our lives more meaningful and make work well, less work. When he isn't helping companies thrive, Andre is a guest lecturer at top universities on design thinking and innovation. I really enjoyed my conversation with Andre and appreciate his fresh take on culture fit, career development, and how to make your work more meaningful. In this conversation, Andre and I discussed the three things that determine if a role is a right fit or a wrong fit, why we should be asking ourselves Does my current company appreciate who I am and how I work? Why you shouldn't judge a company by its career page? What he believes HR is getting wrong when it comes to the employee experience? And why he believes a powerful career starts understanding if you care about a company, a craft, or a cause, and much more. Andre, welcome to the future of HR. How are you? Hey, JP. Doing well. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. We're excited to talk to you and hear about your new book and all that you've been up to. But I first want to start off and just talk a little bit more about your career. You've had an incredible career. You've had the opportunity to have leadership roles in talent at Nike, Target, Google, Accenture. Great, great companies. What experiences in your early career helped prepare you to lead at these amazing companies? JP, it's a great question. And, and those formative experiences, they matter, right? And so the the first one for me was the Center for Creative Leadership. I was 26. I was just out of grad school and had this opportunity to sit with every archetype of leadership you could imagine. So instead of starting my career off in HR, I actually started it off in conversation with leaders in the business about the challenges they face. And that was really instructive in helping me just create this behind the eyes of a CEO sort of mentality. And I could bring that to all the products and processes and things I got to do in my career. I think the second one was I fundamentally had mentors who took big chances on me. 
They gave me opportunities to do pieces of work I had no business doing. And they pushed me out the door and said, I believe in you. And then last was kind of that Malcolm Gladwell mentality early in my career, which is I'm going to invest 10,000 hours in becoming the best at what I do. And so in my early career, every outside moment of work was really spent in getting smarter about my craft. Interesting. Talk to me a little bit about the mentors and taking some big bets on you. Is there one or two in particular that you share with us? Sure. There's a couple. I had a, my first leader at Mars was John Shepard. He had come out of sales, had been running, learning and engagement at Mars Incorporated. I met him through a Center for Creative Leadership program. We were running for Mars and he immediately said, I think you can come do this internally for us to the tune of 70,000 people, right? And it would have been my first corporate job. Up until then, I'd been mostly in training or consulting. And the idea that he saw in me, not only a person who could stand in from a classroom, but could be a senior leader within their company was phenomenal. And he was by my side the entire way after that. And then I think a, a second person for me that was, was really foundational was just the CHRO at Target. Melissa Crane, right? We had her on the show. You met her, but she's worth bringing on. And I was only there for a short stint, but her belief system was you have a perspective that I want at my table. I don't know how to do it. I don't know in what role. I don't know if you're going to move to Minnesota or not, but I don't care because having you seated with me is going to allow me to, to find a better idea. And instilling that sense of confidence that you have value, that your ideas are going to be heard was such a net motivator for, for good work. Well, they sound both like tremendous leaders. And I think not only seeing the potential you had, but that encouraging you to take those leaps, right? But having the confidence in you to do that is incredible. And I love that you brought this up because it's a big point that I've talked about on the podcast many times. And frankly, in my career too, promotions don't happen in a vacuum. You know, these big opportunities don't happen to just anybody. They happen because you've made it happen. People believe in you. They have confidence. They're taking a chance. They're betting a lot of times their career on you. Yeah. And that's really the difference maker. And so it comes down to, well, how do I make that happen? And I think your 10,000 hours point of trying to be the best in the craft is why people feel comfortable taking those bets. Yeah, JP, and it's, a, it's an awesome point, right? Because one of the things that's been on my mind in the book and otherwise is this idea that both those leaders for me, they saw breadth and capability that was outside of the narrowed role that I was either hired for or was interviewing for. And that's one thing that the best leaders do is they don't let the role define the person. You know, on my team, I've taken that practice on my team. I've had a head of operations and learning that happened to be in a world-class journalist. And you know what I did is I made them a writer for me. Or the learning designer who used to be a graphic designer. They were building brand and logo and visual for me all day long. And that ability of great leaders to go, you're not the narrow role that you're playing. You're bigger. And so I'm going to help you explore those, those edges is something that I just think is one of the generous acts of leadership there is. Yeah, I think not letting the role define the person is such a great takeaway, Andre. And probably kind of got you to where you're thinking about the book. And your book's titled Wrong Fit, Right Fit. Why How We Work Matters More Than Ever. Such a timely book. And I'm wondering, as you reflect on your career at some of these amazing companies, 
I wonder if you could share with us what you've learned personally about culture and rules and what was a right fit or wrong fit for you? That's a great question. So right fit for me, it's, it's pretty simple. I always joined companies because of the leader I was working with. I have had the humbling opportunity to choose my leaders over the course of my career. And there were two fundamentals. One is they had to be value-based. I didn't really care what the values were. I just cared that they held them and they held them in every moment. And then the second one is that they were all brilliant at finding the best idea. So instead of being the smartest person in the room, they would bring people together, let us have a great debate, and they would find the best idea and then put it into play. And, and so those were fundamentals that really helped me be great. I think the second one is principle-based companies. You know, the companies where you walk in and the way that the leaders make decisions are through the lens of the same sets of values every day. It doesn't matter if they're in finance or marketing or HR or in the commercial side of the business. And that really just helps continuity of work and helps everyone, I think, feel more committed. And then last was engagement is a philosophy, not a survey. So I've had the opportunity to run engagement processes and companies. And my favorite been the places where it's just the way that we do business. It's a lever for growth. And so all the leaders come to development. They come to feedback. They come to performance with this sense of every moment's engagement moment. So those kind of made the best, the right fit experiences. I think on the wrong fit, it's often the opposite of that. When leaders are entrenched, and they believe they're invincible. That's hard for me when those kind of egos are, are present. And I think when values are sort of spread out, every individual leader sort of creates their own mission, their own value, their own way of working. And it just feels a little chaotic for me. And I'm a small town guy that likes community. And so I think that sense of big when it gets chaotic is hard to feel effective. Really good insights. And I know that we'll get a little more into the book and how people can start to flush out what it means for them. But I really love how you thought about what's right fit for you. And I think all of us can benefit from really thinking about what is a right fit from those culture standpoints, who we work with, which we actually probably don't think about enough, right? We sometimes think about the company and the money and the job, but who you work for and who you work with is a big deal for sure. But my understanding is that when you originally set out to write the book, it was, you were really thinking about culture in this new era of work, but as you got into researching the book, you changed your mind. So tell us more about why you changed your approach and why you decided to title the book, Wrong Fit, Right Fit. JP, this is one of those inflection points in a career, right? It was sort of the space between two chapters for me. And as I got, my publisher really wanted the book on culture, you know, new era work, a lot of disruption, how do we build a good culture in this, in this new age? And and as I started, I started sort of like most researchers do, where I just read every article I could. And I got to tell you, I became really dissatisfied with the dialogue because everything was about toxic cultures or good or bad cultures or how to create a great culture. And I sat there thinking, I don't know very many companies, if any at all, that set out to create a terrible experience for their employees. And then as I reflected back, even on my career and the, and the great brands I've been in, I would tell you that 60% of the people there are generally happy. They like where they are. They like what they do. They like who they do it with. And then there's this 40% where it just feels harder than it should. And that sort of tipped me into this interview of, right, hey, tell me about these times in your life when you had a deep and unwavering dedication to the way a company worked. 
it just felt easy. And then tell me about a time when it wasn't. And in those interviews, the thing that got me to the point of writing this, this wrong fit, right fit book was the wrong fit stories. I would have leaders on the phone with me who were now unpacking this experience and talking about it wasn't the values, it wasn't the purpose, it wasn't the brand. I had a ton of leaders. It wasn't just leaders. It was the day-to-day felt really hard. It felt foreign. It felt like I was writing with my non-dominant hand. And in giving them that frame, they started to be able to make peace with what up until then felt like a failure in their life. Because they were attributing this wrong fit experience to their capability, to their skill. They were watching everyone else succeed and they couldn't find their feet. And so in those conversations, they started to be able to to recognize that it's not that you're not capable. It's that the place that you put yourself in and the way it worked didn't work for you. So insightful, Andre. What you're hinting at is that we do internalize that when it's not going well. We're like, I'm trying really hard to connect with my boss or the team and does it feel like it's working? And you've all seen people who aren't fitting or maybe we haven't fit ourselves. And it's easy to kind of blame ourselves to your point. And I think we were really acknowledging your book as I kind of read through it was, hey, it's, there's a culture that does fit me. There's a right fit out there. I've just got to figure out how to find that fit. But can you talk a little bit more about what finding the right fit means inside a company? You mentioned three key dimensions. Can you talk about these three dimensions a little bit more? Because I thought they were terrific. Sure. So when we started unpacking this idea of fit, there were these three dimensions. The first one was really about the company. And it was, how does the company prefer to work at its best? And when you think about it, JP, I'll use my examples from my career. Mars couldn't work more differently than Target who couldn't work more differently than Nike, who couldn't work more differently than Google. There's just a, there's an archetype and a way of working that is pervasive inside of a company. And it's how we collaborate, how we make decisions, how we solve problems, how we sell in ideas, how we give feedback, develop, socialize, what's our relationship with time, all these things that impact our day-to-day that we don't talk about. And so really getting clear about what that is, is vital. Secondly, then you have these two dimensions of individuals. On one hand is who I am, the experiences, characteristics, and capabilities that make me unique in the world. And this has often been the purview of talent management and our great colleagues in DEI, really focusing on does the company appreciate and value who I am? But then through the interviews, what we found was this other area that's not talked about. And it's how I like to work. We'd gotten in this rhythm in our companies where when we join, we just try to become whoever they are, right? When in fact, we have preferred ways of working, preferred ways of doing all those things I talked about earlier. And if we can understand those, we can assess our companies on two dimensions. Do they appreciate who I am? And do they appreciate how I work? And so part of the premise is that we have to figure out how we operate, where we'll be successful, and engage how the company's operating to see if it's going to be a fit. But those things are not, like you said, they're not really talked about in the interview. And one of my favorite interview questions that, because I mean, if you're in HR, we get a lot of these questions, right? And a lot of times candidates will say, well, you know, what's the culture like? 
which is my least favorite interview question on the planet because Same. it's very nebulous, right? So I turn around and what I've asked, when I've asked CEOs or executives that I'm interviewing with, I say, well, give me a decision that you've made in the last six months that best describes your culture. I love that. And if I, flips- I wish I would have talked to you six months ago, I could put that question in the book. We have a, a set of interview questions that help you unpack a little bit more about how a company works. That one would have been fantastic. Well, you're free to use it. And you say in your book, don't judge a company by its career page. What do you mean by this? And how should candidates start to judge that company? Yeah, so it's interesting. If you go out to most career pages, and you probably experience this too, JP, they become brilliant marketing campaigns, right? There is much aspiration and vision and hope and really what the company in many ways wishes they were every day. But what happens is we set up our employees, our new recruits, the folks that come in the company to experience three versions of company. The first one is the one that's marketed to us in recruiting. It is that aspirational, ideal, best of the best sort of experience because it's highly competitive to get talent. And then what happens is you buy that, right? And then you come in on your first day and you get this curated version of what the company is. It's the best leaders. It's the most impactful products. It's the best work systems that we use. It's all the things that will be a part of your life, but you're seeing the best version. And then the last is the place where you're going to spend your life. And what we're finding in these interviews was that in creating these three versions of the company, we're eroding engagement from the very start. I think it's this company that I was recruited into. It actually felt like the company when I was there on the first day. And then you sent me to the place where I work and none of it's really true. It's not that it's good or bad. It's just that it's different. And that mismatch of expectation is driving some of the stats you're seeing. 30% of employees that join a new company leave within 90 days. Those that stay more than six months, 60% of them are still looking for a new job. Part of that is because there's this mismatch of expectation. And those stats really are kind of crazy to me when you think about the fact that choosing to work for a company is a very big decision. It is. And to your point, most people don't probably join a company thinking they want to leave after a few weeks, a month, or six months. It's a little bit like a marriage. And you're going in, of course, hey, I don't want to get divorced. We're in love. You find out that's not the person you thought you were marrying. It's similar in companies, right? And we've got things like Glassdoor now. We're trying to get more intel. But I think we still don't really know what it's like to work in a company. And so what have you found... Andre, what are people, what should they be doing to get behind the marketing veneer to really understand like what day-to-day life is going to be like in that job? There's a few things, JP. You mentioned the first one, which is we need to change our orientation to our interviews. Instead of asking questions that might in many ways ingratiate us to the company, we need to be asking harder questions of those companies. I love the one that you just said around, tell me about a decision you made in the last month that describes your culture. Another one that's great is tell me about the success profile of the person who's been able to move through this company most effectively. Another one is really just asking those questions of how does work get done? Walk me through a project. Show me your calendar. What's your relationship to time? And those kind of things are really important to your day-to-day life. And so the interview is one thing. 
I think secondly is diversifying our information sets. So we often go through an interview process, three to four, maybe five interviews. We look at the career site. We might check out Glassdoor. But there's so many additional assets out there from videos of leaders talking about the company to annual reports to using the network of people who have left and hearing their experience live. I have people reach out to me all the time asking about the companies I've been to, and I'm happy to have those conversations with them to tell them my experience of being there and what they can expect going in. And so second is just diversifying that information set. And I think third is just watching out for confirmation bias. When we are motivated to make a decision, it's often on title, on pay, on the scope of the role, on the power of the brand. And all those assets, they play to a part of our brain that's about pleasure. When in fact, commitment is more like a warm hug and it's about how it feels in the day to day. And so really making sure that you're paying attention to all the, all the information. In many of our interviews, when we ask the question of, tell us the moment when you knew this was a wrong fit experience, almost everybody pointed back to, I knew it in the interview and I ignored the information. The hard part, Andre, I love your perspective here is that you really do want the job. It's a competitive market. You're like, I don't want to upset anybody by asking, can I see your calendar? Can you talk to me about how you walk through a project? Do you have any tips or advice for folks that are a little hesitant to push back and say, I need more information to make sure I'm making a great decision and you're making a great decision? In, in the book, we used a lot of the best practices from the interviews that we conducted. In the book, we have a series of excursions is what we call them. They're basically reflective exercises for people to go through. They range from you have to know the values you use in decision making what really matters to you, not who you wish you were, but what you actually use when you make big life decisions all the way through to what matters right now, right? So we have an excursion there that really talks about this idea. You got to be clear about what matters to you right now. Sometimes a job just needs to be a job. You have financial responsibilities. Your partners just moved to a new city. You have kids who are going to college. But often we don't think through that area of what do I need out of life right now? What does this job need to do for me in my larger pursuits? How can it help me in the moment? How can it help me in the future? And by giving people some of those excursions, we're helping them just to be much more prepared because the minute you hit the LinkedIn job button, you're already in, right? You're already looking at narrowed roles and brands and all those things. So to do this work before you start is just vital to help you make a decision that's going to work for now and work for later. The other thing I guess I would think through, Andre, and tell me if this resonates for you, is I've always really thought about it. it's not the job I'm getting today, it's the job after that. And I'm more thinking about what is this job today going to help me learn and experience and help me grow that'll make me more marketable in the future, that'll make me able to have a wider net of jobs that may be potential opportunities for me, or that just makes me more valuable to that organization. Is that how you've thought about it as, as well? I'm glad you brought it up. It's again, in one of those exercises, one of the things we ask are anyone who reads the book to do is a future retrospective. So we basically are saying, hey, get out 20 years or 10 years and construct in detail the life that you actually want at that moment. Where are you living? What are you doing? How did the days get spent? What's happening? Who are your friends? What's your community? How are you spending your time outside of work? What are you doing for work? And then to be able to reverse engineer 
the steps you have to take to get there. And again, it's one of those exercises where I like your idea of just the next job, but what if you did the next two jobs or a five-year stint at a job? Where does that put you? And that's where you start to look at these very discreet, very narrowed roles, a paycheck, as a stepping stone towards something. And there's a lot of people in the world that just never have a reason behind the next move. And that's where you start to, again, see a lack of commitment, disengagement, stress, because you start to realize that this is sort of a dead end, even though it serves a purpose today, it's not helping you tomorrow. And the sweet spot is getting both those things right. Let's talk a little more about what companies and HR leaders can do to do this. And you talk a little bit about reimagining or re-recruiting a talent for right fit. Tell us more about what that looks like. There's two elements to it, right? Right. So winning... When we talk to leaders about how they can create organizations that inherently help talent to find right fit, the first thing we have to do is we have to rediscover how the company works day to day. JP, you probably have this experience to do. There's so many companies that when you enter them and you ask, tell me about the culture, and they're like, you just got to bump into it. You just got to get in there and start learning the ropes and you'll figure it out. It'll just take time. We work really differently. And I'm like, why don't we make that overt? Why don't we make sure that the work principles, the practices, and the platforms that we do work are overt to all talent and they're consistent across function? Because the truth is, in many of our companies today, most of them, matter of fact, no one does purely vertical work. It's all on a horizontal. And if your CFO decides to work a different way. Your marketing leader decides to work a different way. Your head of engineering decides to work a different way. If you're caught in the horizontal, all of your creative energy is going to context and coordination. And so we're actually putting a lot of our creativity into trying to figure out how the company works and we're just bleeding brilliance, you know? And so I think that's the first one is, is really rediscover, not recreate, just rediscover what, how's this company work at its best? I think the second piece is we got to realize that in this age of infinite browsing and distraction and FOMO, our re-recruiting cycles are much shorter. I remember the days way back when where all you had to do was send a strategy, tell everyone about the start of the year, and then just let them roll. And people were committed and they were engaged and they were staying at their companies. Now, you got to do that every quarter, every month, probably every day, because Every employee in almost every company is distracted. They are, they have access to other people doing cooler things, which means they have some FOMO, right? And they are wondering why are they doing the job they're doing every day? How is it meaningful? And so this is where I think a lot of what HR is going to be tasked with is we've got to re-recruit people every day. We got to train managers to re-recruit people every day, remind people, why is the world better with us in it? How do we make money and have impact? How do we do work? And what's our promise to you? And that's a really hard job. I would love to hear a little bit more because I recently saw, I think, a LinkedIn post you did that talked about engagement as more of like, it's really hand-to-hand combat, right? It's not a, <laughs> it's not one strategy for the year, one engagement survey. It's really every day re-recruiting people. Can you talk a little more about what that looks like and some of the tactics? Sure, I'd love to. The post was all about this idea of engagement's a ground game. And so when you think about the employee experience, it's not 
what it's often talked about, which is it starts with recruiting and then it's onboarding and then it's performance and then it's promotion and then it's retirement. It's actually in every single year, you have about a thousand touch points with every employee. Policy, a program, a one-on-one, a town hall, a team meeting, an offsite, a happy hour. These are all touch points. And what we have to start doing is we have to start using every one of those touch points as a re-recruitment opportunity. We're basically on campus doing recruiting every single day. And if you start looking at them that way, you'd be surprised at the number that just don't connect to the company, to the purpose, to the strategy, to the values at all. We're just doing them as sort of administrative tasks when in fact, they could be enormous engagement points for us. Yeah, I love your idea of the ground game. Maybe it's not hand-to-hand combat that maybe it's a little too too aggressive. But it, it might feel like that way to some though. It, it does feel like sometimes I know it, and in my life, I've had those experiences where you feel like it is kind of hand-to-hand combat of like just really making sure you're getting that message out there. But the way that I think about it, Andre, that I think is really similar, and I've, I've said this for a lot of years, that every action that we take from an HR perspective, every touch point you talk about is an opportunity to move the culture forward or backwards. Right. You're never neutral. And to think that we can stay neutral is just wrong. And so you've got to really start to think through your point of view which is what's the ground game? How do we tie this back to the bigger picture so that we are moving the culture forward, that people are seeing that? And I love the idea of re-recruiting, but that's kind of the same concept. So really, really smart. It is. And the last thing I'd say about it, JP, and you probably have a lot of guests talk about this now, is it was easier before COVID, I think, because you had perks and campuses and proximity that you could use as elements to sort of buttress engagement. Now, all we have is that screen. You looking at me, me looking at you for a lot of people, whether you're in an office or not, you're probably still on a video. And so the idea of like, every time I turn on that screen, my job is to make sure that the person on their side clicks off with higher engagement and more commitment to the company. That's a big task, but that's the reality we face. What about Thinking about HR a little bit more specifically, what's your advice for next generation HR leaders as they assess their company or even a prospective company to make sure that they've got the right fit? So JP, like you, I have a lot of time for our future HR leaders. We know that HR's job and position in the company is only going to increase in importance with the way that work's changing. And so my advice would be the HR future HR folks on the room, just like it would be for anyone who's building a career. And it starts with this idea of you got to decide what your career is going to be about. And we sort of come came to three different types of careers that we create. The first one is, are you of company? There are people out there that love a brand, that live a brand in their personal life and in their day-to-day. Many of the folks I worked at Nike or Target, they are Nike and Target for the rest of their lives, Right. And by knowing that, you can construct a really great career. That career is about a network. It's about working in as many functions as you can and in as many teams so you can build a really strong network and understanding how the company runs. The second type of career is really about craft. And these are people who are building a core deep capability. I'm one of those people. So my whole life has been engagement, executive development, and culture. And it's what I care about. It's what I love. To build that career, you can't stay in a single company. 
right? You can't become an expert in a craft without seeing it from multiple different places and multiple different perspectives. So that career is very different, right? You don't want to take a sidestep into other things. You want to stay in that craft, right? Every day, all the time, as many hours as you can. And then there's the last type of career, which is cause. These are the individuals that are out to upend a giant injustice in the world, a big, gnarly problem that we're all facing, right? So those individuals tend to follow the energy. So if you're of cause, let's say you care about ESG, you care about the environment, you want to go work for a company that does that work as well as anybody in the world, right? Because you want to be on the front edge of having impact. And so my advice is pretty simple is, Most people want to believe they can have all three and that's a unicorn, right? It just, it just doesn't happen. So be choiceful about which one of those is primary for you and think long and hard about how you have to build that career. It can change over time, but knowing where you stand, are you a company of craft or cause can really help you create a more powerful career. Andre, last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? That's a great question. I would tell you it is going to be all about building a new relationship with time. I believe HR in the future is going to be the fuel for the company. We dictate how much time do you take off. We dictate the role of rest and recovery in the company. We dictate really in many ways how meetings are run because we do leadership and manager training. We dictate how we think about our calendars and the platforms we use in work. And so I would tell anybody that's working in HR today, become an expert in energy, personal energy, become an expert in all the different ways that we can see and utilize time, because that is the one finite resource we have in companies. And we just can't get it back. We can't get it back in our personal careers. We can't get back in our companies. Let's start using it a lot smarter than we are. And that'd be my advice to the industry and my hope for us as we move forward. Well, Andre, this has been a fantastic time. We will continue to think about the value of time. The book is Wrong Fit, Right Fit. Andre, thank you so much for being on The Future of HR. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, JP. So did I. I'll come back any day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Andre for sharing his incredible new book, Wrong Fit, Right Fit with us. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps us with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Paige Ross, who's the Global Head of Human Resources at Blackstone and recognized as one of the top 40 CHROs in 2022 by Into Growth. You won't want to miss this conversation with Paige as I discuss her career journey and where HR should and shouldn't be spending their time when it comes to shaping culture. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.